The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 1, 17-23. Now when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way, so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promise is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I did not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Tricia. When Abraham Lincoln was running for the U.S. Senate, he did a series of debates with Stephen Douglas. Douglas was known for being very quick and very sharp-tongued, and he was really critical of Lincoln. And in one particular debate, he called Lincoln two-faced. When it was Lincoln's turn to speak, he looked out of the crowd and he responded to Douglas's criticism that he was two-faced by saying, honestly, if I were two-faced, would I be showing you this one? And the crowd just sort of burst out in laughter, and it totally diffused the situation, and Lincoln moved on to other topics. Wouldn't it be great if it were always that easy to deal with criticism? Like, you just come up with a sort of quick, witty one-liner, you say it, and it just sort of disappears. But it doesn't really work like that, does it? When criticism comes, and it's a part of life, we tend to respond either with despair or defensiveness. So if we think the criticism is accurate, or maybe it comes from someone we don't expect, someone we're close to. We, a lot of times, we respond to it with despair. I, I can't believe they'd say that. I can't believe, they, 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 I just can't believe that would happen. Or if we think maybe the criticism's unfair, that it's wrong, then we tend to sort of stiffen our neck and defend ourselves, and our defensiveness usually turns actually into attacks on the person criticizing us. How dare they? How do you respond to criticism? Like, what's your natural way? Is it despair? Like, you know, Winnie the Pooh? Your Eeyore? Or maybe if you, inside out, your sadness, this criticism sort of knocks you into a tailspin and you, you sort of spiral into discouragement and maybe even self-pity? Or is it defensiveness, right? Your, your inner lawyer comes out. You're like, you're like a young Tom Cruise saying, you know, you can't handle the truth, right? Like, I do, like, I'm going to offend myself to the end. What about us as a church? How will we handle criticism? Because criticism will come. We will come, and some of it's going to be fair, because we're a church full of sinners. And some of it's going to be unfair. Maybe most of it's going to be unfair, because we live in a world that we know hates Jesus. So how will we handle it? Last week, as we introduced ourselves to the book of 2 Corinthians, we saw how the Apostle Paul's concern was 
what was shaping this churches and these believers? What's shaping their outlook on life? And he was concerned that they were primarily looking at life through the lens of sort of culture, the way those around them looked at it, the way they'd always looked at it. And his goal in this letter is to show them how the cross of Jesus should shape how we view everything in our lives. And this includes how we handle criticism, both individually and as a church. The cross changes how we handle criticism. So we're going to see how this works out as the Apostle Paul. He deals with criticism because of some choices he's made. He changed his travel plans, and some have taken his change as a sign that he's no longer trustworthy. They say, you know, that Paul, he's, he's dishonest. Or he's deceiving you. Or, I mean, he doesn't even, he's double-minded. He's, he's just changing his mind all the time. He says one thing and he does another. He, he makes a promise, but he doesn't come through. You can't count on him. And his response to their criticism shows us how to deal with criticism in light of the cross. Their criticism begins in verse 15. Look at what he writes. He says, because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, and you can hear how he's echoing the criticism here, was I of two minds? See, that's what people are saying. Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Well, as God is faithful, our message is not yes and no. So Paul's original plan, he says, was, I wanted to visit you both on the way to Macedonia and, the, and on the return. And he, he told them that in the end of his first letter to Corinth. He said, that's my goal, is to visit you as I go. And he ends up changing his plans. And, and we'll see why later. But for those in this church who are trying to undermine his message, which, which is what's going on, there's this group within the church who are saying, listen to us, not him. We'll tell you the truth. Follow us. Don't listen to Paul. They seize on this change of plans and they use it to sow seeds of distrust. They're saying, Paul, he deliberately lied to you. Like he's, he's using you for his own purposes. You can't trust him. And they say, listen, I mean, Paul, he's the guy who speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He'll look at you and he'll say, absolutely. And he'll turn to someone else and say, definitely not. Brothers and sisters, we need to prepare for criticism. Do you remember how last week's passage warned us that affliction comes to all who follow Jesus? Sometimes affliction comes in this form, the form of unjust criticism. Of course it does, right? Because Jesus was sinless. Jesus was perfect, and yet he still received criticism for, for the choices he made, for the people he spent time with, for his motives. So if Jesus, who is perfect, is criticized, we sinners who follow him will certainly be criticized. Unless we sink into self-pity, it's not something new. This has just been the history of following Christ since the very first days of Christianity. We read in the book of Acts that because Christians would, would stop going to false worship, those who made idols and who, who had businesses that surrounded these, these temples of false worship, they started to really dislike Christians because it hurt the bottom line. And so they would bring all these false charges against Christians. One of the worst false charges against Christians was by the Emperor Nero, who blamed the Christians for a fire that destroyed much of Rome. And the Roman historian Tacitus, he admitted, he's like, everyone knows those charges were false, but he continued, 
The real reason Christians are persecuted, the real reason they're chosen is because of their hatred against mankind. What do the Christians do to be called haters? Well, because they refuse to condone all these false gods and they, they refuse to go along with the practices that surrounded them. And so listen, we're going to face criticism, both individually and we're going to face it as a church. And some of it's going to be fair and most of it probably will be unfair. And how we respond, listen, how we respond to criticism depends entirely upon our understanding of the cross. And, listen, and our willingness to let the cross shape our actions. And so here the Apostle Paul provides a model for us as he deals with his criticism over his change in plans. How does the cross shape his response? How should it shape ours? Well, when criticism comes, first, examine your life, especially motives. Examine your life, especially motives. If we see ourselves in light of the cross, then our first move should be to suspect ourselves, right? Because we, we understand that we're sinners. We're honest about the depths of our sin. We recognize that no one can say anything worse about us than the cross says about us. Here's what the cross says about us. Josh, your sin is so deep, your sin is so pervasive that the only remedy for your sin is that the Son of God had to die in your place. Your only hope to solve your drastic and deadly sin problem was Jesus had to die for you. See, that's what the cross says about who we are. And so when someone says something bad about us, our first thought should be, Well, it could be true. I'm a sinner. In fact, I'm a worse sinner than they know. And so we begin to interrogate our own heart. So in light of the criticism you receive, the Apostle Paul looks inward. Was this criticism fair? Was it accurate? And we see the outcome of this personal examination in verses 12 through 14. He writes, indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience. So we examined our conscience and our life in light of God's word. And here's the testimony. Is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and understand. I hope you will understand completely just as you have partially understood us. That we are your reason for pride just as you also are Hours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul examines his life and he does not claim sinlessness. Here's what he claims he claims sincerity. Because the charges against him are that Paul is hiding something, Paul is acting in an underhanded or a duplicitous manner. Paul's deceptive. And Paul says, no, I examined myself in the light of God's word, and the outcome is that I'm not dishonest with you. I have acted in a sincere or a transparent way. My motives, my actions, my message, verse 12, come from godly sincerity and purity. And he's run a test, he says, of my heart. And what's come out is that my motives are uncontaminated, my actions are unpolluted. So in the famous novel, The Scarlet Letter, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, there's this line that one of the characters says. He comes to the minister and he he hands him a glove, which was actually the minister's glove, and he says, a pure hand needs no glove to cover it. 
Now, the irony in that statement is that the minister he's talking to actually is hiding sin. In fact, that's sort of what the book is about. Spoiler warning from a 300-year-old book. Right? It's about this minister hiding sin, and this line is, is sort of a throwaway by the guy who says it, but it's, it really affects the minister because he doesn't have a pure hand. He's hiding something. Well, the Paul, so Paul sort of says the opposite here. He's like, I- I'm not hiding anything. I'm looking at my life. There's, there's nothing sinister in me. There's nothing deceptive I'm covering. I have no secret motives. I have no secret actions. I have no secret message. See, the main charge here is that Paul has a secret motive, a secret agenda. That Paul's like an undercover villain. So you have these critics that are in this church. They're like whispering like, hey, he's using you for his own purposes. He, he's, Paul's using you to bolster his own reputation. So the way Paul defends against this charge is he, he talks about how much he does boast. But then he flips the, the concept of boasting upside down. Paul doesn't boast in himself or in his successes. He boasts in them. And he boasts in the cross. And he boasts in his weakness. In fact, 25 times in this letter, Paul talks about boasting, but he never boasts in what people normally boast in. See, the cross has changed his boasting. In, fact, in another letter, Paul says, "Oh, I, I, before Jesus, I used to boast in myself. I boast in my reputation. I boast in my education. Like I was, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I boasted in my religious zeal. No one was more zealous than I was. I boasted in my success and my goodness. That's what I boasted in before the cross. But notice what he boasts in here. He's like, verse 12, I boast in God's grace. Verse 14, I boast in other people. Now think about this. To boast in God's grace is to boast in the fact that you don't deserve anything. So it's an it's a anti-boasting boasting. To boast in other people, which says in verse 14, you're our reason for pride. That's anti-boasting boasting. Because Paul, Paul isn't making posters of himself and autographing them. I, I was a child of the 80s. We liked posters. Like I had Michael Jordan posters and the Bad Boys posters, the Detroit Pistons and football posters. We loved posters back then and putting them on our wall and ruining the paint job. Paul's not walking around with posters of like him preaching or him writing letters and signing them and saying like, here you go. Paul's like, if anything, what I do is I print posters of you and I give it to people and say, look at what God's doing. See, this is a stark contrast to the boasting all around him. The people in this time were no different than, not, than we are now. They, they like to boast. So if somebody did something that was a great accomplishment, they'd bring in an artist and say, I want you to paint a picture of my great victory so it can be hung on a wall. Right? Those are the pictures you see in museums now. Or I'm going to bring in a sculptor, and I'm going to be like, sculpt my likeness of me wearing a, of the victorious crown so that everyone can know how great I am. Right? Those are the ancient versions of Instagram stories or humble brags. Right? They, want, they want everyone to know how great they were. But verse 12, Paul says, this is what I boast in. I boast in how God's grace has worked in me to produce a sincere and pure life. And I boast in the good work that he's done in you. You, he says to this church, you, not statues and portraits, you are the evidence of God's good work. You know, to boast in others is not arrogant. We do this all the time. I have the best doctor. Like if you go to him, 
Like, he listens to you, and then every time I go, he helps me. And if I ever need something, I can just reach out to him, and he responds quickly. Like, you should go there. Susanna makes the best cinnamon rolls. I love showing up at staff meeting when she comes walking in with, like, a Tupperware container. Something wonderful's in there. We, had a, we saw the greatest view the other day. Like, we, we drove in and just sort of came upon it. Wow, it's stunning. You should see it. I heard the best song on the radio. See, our boasting in these moments is not self-centered. We've experienced something good, and we just want to share it with others. It's good that we've received. And so Paul, here, he's praising the good that he's experienced because God's at work in his life and the life of the church. And so he's not motivated, as his critics claim, by a desire to make his name great or do anything at the expense of the church. He's like, my motives are unmixed. I have acted in complete transparency with you. No secret motives. But he also says, I have no secret actions. Verse 12, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity. I'm like, I'm not hiding anything. Like, I, I, I act the same way inside the church and I act the same way outside the church. I'm not a hypocrite. Like, you don't, you don't see one Paul on Sunday and see another Paul on Tuesday. You don't see one Paul when I'm with one people, group of people, another Paul when I'm with another group of people. I don't pretend to do anything. I'm not an actor. Brothers and sisters, freedom and power come from living a transparent life. Probably all of us have had a time in our life where we know we're acting hypocritically. We know we're hiding something. Right? And we, we, we're on edge all the time. We're like, we're like that eighth grade boy who just wrote graffiti in the bathroom wall and he's scared the principal's going to come knocking. So anytime a phone rings or there's a knock on the door or the email beeps or somebody says, hey, I was looking for you, this guilt flares up because we're hiding something. Are you hiding something right now? Are you living a double life? Is there a you that no one here sees? Freedom comes through openness, honesty, and transparency. Here's we can see this. By the grace of God, you can say, I have a clear conscience. So if you're hiding today, step into the light. It may be painful, but you won't regret it. So Paul's examined his life. He says there are no secret motives, there's no secret actions, and there's no secret messages. Verse 13, everything I've said to you, everything I've written, you can take at face value. I'm communicating honestly and openly. I didn't say one thing but really mean another. Now verse 14 says, you might not have understood everything I've said, but it's not because I was misleading you. I've done my best to communicate clearly, no double meanings, no passive aggressiveness, When I said I was planning to come, I meant it, but you have always known my plans are not my own. Paul's so confident that his ministry has been marked to transparency. He shows us why why this has been such a a desire of his ministry to them. At the end of verse 14, he talks about the day of the Lord. That's a day when Jesus returns and all stand before him. Like that's the day when every hidden and secret thing will be revealed. And so this is what motivates Paul's sincerity because he's like, I, I'm not going to do anything underhanded because one day Jesus returns and everything I've done, he puts in the fire and only pure things last. 
So if I build my ministry on things that are underhanded, they're going to burn up at the end. What a waste. But this also reminds him that everything he's doing is for the ultimate good of those he's ministering to because in the end, they're going to stand before the Lord too and that's what he's looking forward to, that day when they will be accepted by God. So their, their acceptance of him is not his ultimate goal. Their acceptance by God, that's his goal. That's what he's pursuing. You know, human wisdom pursues treasure that rusts and corrodes. Like you need to get this thing or that thing. Things that don't last. It's the equivalent of buying a metal te- detector to finance your retirement instead of saving money. And Paul's like, like I, God's wisdom has trained me to seek lasting treasure. So as he looks at his life and ministry in 12 through 14, he's like, my motives have been pure. I've been pursuing your good so that everything I've said, everything I've done, and what... I'm, I'm going to present that to God on the last day and the trophies I give God on the last day are not going to be, look God what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. He's like, I'm going to look at you and I'm saying, look at these. These are the trophies I give you, God. Things that last. Changed lives. So when criticism comes, the cross teaches you to examine your life. Especially your motives. So after examining your life, defend the gospel. Number two, defend the gospel, not yourself. Defend the gospel on yourself. So the criticism of Paul's change in plans has led to criticism of his message. The the subtext is this. Can we really trust what Paul says about God if we can't trust Paul when he says he's visiting us? So because their criticism of him has bled into the gospel, then Paul must defend himself against the criticism. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see Paul doesn't always defend himself against criticism. In fact, often he, he, just, he doesn't address it. There are many times he just simply leaves the criticism in God's hands. But when the criticism undermines the gospel, then it must be addressed. And so Paul begins with a defense of God's faithfulness. Verse 18, as God is faithful, in the same way that God is faithful, because God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen, or yes, let it be to the glory of God. Now it's God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He's also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Can God be trusted? Paul can't be trusted. Can God be trusted? Well, Paul's answer, verse 20, is that God has fulfilled all of his promises in Jesus Christ. That every pledge God made was kept in the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. That his death and his resurrection prove his faithfulness to his people. This claim, Paul makes, is why we interpret all the Bible in the light of Jesus Christ. This is why we read and study the Old Testament with Jesus at the center. That it's one story about him. Because all of God's promises lead to Jesus. And so that's why when we come to God with requests, we come in Jesus' name based upon the fact, God, that you keep all of your promises in Jesus. We ask you for this in his name and we respond, yes, amen, let it be. See, we're affirming that moment, our belief that God keeps his promises through Jesus. Paul here, he describes the work of God 
in his life and the life of these other Christians. And he seems to have a couple goals in mind for doing it. He wants them first to understand the faithfulness of God, right? Because he's, it's like he says, look at all that God has promised. Look at all that God has done for us. You can trust him. But then he also wants them to know that his identity is not based upon what the critics say, but what God says about him. So look at what God has done for us. We can trust him. And look at what God says about me. I belong to him. And so my identity is not defined by what these critics say. How has God demonstrated his faithfulness? Well, notice he says, he says he establishes his people in Christ. So our source of strength is not our own, in our own ability. We find strength in Christ. Like Christ is a sure and steady foundation upon which our lives are built. And so when the storms of affliction rage or when the winds of criticism blow, we don't keep ourselves standing, Christ does. And when God calls us to do something difficult, like facing unfair criticism, that's difficult, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's not easy. So when God calls us to do something difficult, like, hey, keep your mouth shut, even though that person's unfairly criticizing you, then we don't look for like additional reservoirs of power inside us. Like, I can do this. We look to Christ who strengthens us. And he gives us the power to obey. And he continues by pointing us to an Old Testament truth, really Old Testament examples of anointing. When you think about the Old Testament, you think about some of these men being anointed, men like Samson, right? Mighty Samson took on all these enemies. Or David, he's anointed and he fights a giant and defeats him. And like, we're probably not going to go fight a 3,000 enemies holding the jawbone of a donkey. Probably not in your agenda this week. Unlikely that's what God has for you. But he might have you do something really difficult, which is not respond to someone who's criticizing you unfairly. That's really hard too. It's a different type of hard, but it's really hard. How will you have the power to do that? Well, the anointing that came on Samson, God has anointed us to do tough things, to weather difficulty. He's anointed us with his spirit to obey him, to proclaim and live the gospel. And then he has stamped us with his own personal seal to demonstrate that we belong to him, we're his authorized representatives. And then he lets his spirit live in us so that we're guaranteed that one day all of creation will be renewed and we'll be renewed with it. So he's like, yeah, God is faithful. But then he says, and if you're a Christian, your identity has been irreversibly established by God, not by your critics. So listen, if, if we respond to criticism with despair or defensiveness, it's because we're finding our identity in something other than what God says about us. So if I find my identity in my work, like, this is, this is my identity. This is what defines me, what I do. And then t- tomorrow morning I wake up and I log in my email and there's this nasty email from some guy telling me how he hated the sermon, it was awful, on and on and on. If my identity is found in this, then I'm going to either spiral into self-pity or I'm going to get defensive. How dare he say that? He doesn't know what he's talking about. He hasn't been to seminary. despair or defensiveness because he's attacking what is most important to me, how to find myself. But if I read that email and I, I remember, you know, my standing before God is settled, that God has established, anointed, and sealed me with his spirit, 
then I can look at that criticism for what it is. In fact, I can even look at it and say, is, is there a truth there? Are there certain things he's right on? And I can evaluate my life, and then maybe I look at it and say, like, not only does he seem to be attacking me, but he also seems to be attacking the truth, and I might need to respond to this. I can do that if necessary, but I can do it with a totally different spirit than if he has attacked my identity. See, all of us find our primary identity in something. And a lot of times we're not sure what it is. And maybe you're like, well, I wonder, where do I find my identity? And here's the, maybe the easiest way to identify where you find identity is this. Where are you most sensitive to criticism? Like, where are you most touchy? What's the thing that is most likely to cause you to defend yourself? Or maybe what's the thing most likely to crush you? So that, maybe that's criticism about your family. Or maybe it's criticism from your family, like well, mama bear, right? And maybe that's because it's, it's criticizing the thing that most defines you, and without that thing, you don't know who you are. Or maybe it's criticism at your job. Maybe it's criticism because of some skill you have or don't have or wished you had. Or maybe it's about how you look or how successful you are, or how unsuccessful you are. But until you find your identity in Christ, then you will constantly struggle with criticism. All of us build our lives on something. We define who we are by something. So it's either on Jesus and his saving work, or it's something else. Usually what, what we've done, or, or we, something we have. I just say this to you, friend, nothing other than Jesus is strong enough to support you. That nothing else, your dreams, your accomplishments, your good works, nothing can support you in the end. And that's why we invite you to come to Jesus. Do you realize, Christian, that when you're criticized, you don't need to defend yourself? The Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter, about how Jesus was unjustly, unfairly criticized and condemned. And he said this, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Most of the time when you're insulted, most of the time when you're criticized, most of the time when you're condemned, you respond as a Christian to that criticism by trusting the Lord with it. That's it. Just like Jesus. But sometimes you look at it and you're like, I, I believe I need to defend this for the gospel's sake. And in those moments then, with, like Paul, you speak up with courage. And so that's what Paul does here. He evaluates his life in light of this criticism. And he speaks up when he realizes this criticism is spreading to the gospel. And so when criticism comes, here's what the cross teaches us. Look at your life. Look at your motives. If right, then look, are they attacking me or are they attacking the gospel? If they're attacking me, I entrust myself to the God who judges justly. If they're attacking the gospel, I need to speak up. Once you do that, here's third. Act in love. Pursuing joy. Act in love, pursuing joy. So he's made the gospel clear. Paul now, he explains what led to this change in travel plans. That he made this decision out of a love for the church and 
out of a desire for their joy. Look what he says in verse 23. I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. His motives are not self-centered. He's motivated by a deep love for them. So he explains further. What does he mean that he spares them from a visit? So apparently after he wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, he received a report from Timothy that things were not going well in the church. Now, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know things aren't going well in the church. It's a church with a lot of struggles. But he, he receives a report from Timothy, hey, that, that letter th- hasn't solved things. It's still bad. In fact, it's even getting worse. And so Paul decides, I'm going to make a quick trip there to try to set things straight. And he makes a quick trip there, a quick visit that he, des- that he describes, look at chapter 2, verse 1, as painful. So this is, it's sort of a confrontational trip. Well, that trip doesn't fix things. It doesn't resolve things. And so he writes them a letter. And he describes the writing of this letter in verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, though it likely did, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. And so he makes a painful visit, and he follows it up with an emotional letter. And then, listen, wisdom told him to wait a while before visiting. See, a visit when he originally planned would have been too soon. There wouldn't have been time for them to process the, the, the visit and the letter. There wouldn't have been time for them to change. There wouldn't have been time for them to heal. And so he makes this judgment call motivated by love for them. He says, verse 4, by an abundant love for them. Like in spite of all this criticism. Here's Paul's desire He says in verse 24, I want a relationship with you marked by joy. We are workers with you for your joy. In fact, he says, verse 2, he says, the next time I visit you, I want to be cheered up when I visit. Because, verse 3, you can be such a source of joy for me. So every difficult thing Paul said, every painful confrontation, he says it's been motivated by love and it's intended for your joy. Here's what he models for us is that true love is willing to have difficult conversations. Now, we understand that's not the prevailing mindset of the culture. So if we're being shaped by the culture, it doesn't say that. Because the culture says, hey, love and joy, if you really love them, you'll let them do what they want to do. Sort of turn a blind eye to sin. You, You certainly keep your mouth shut and your nose out of their choices. It's not what the cross teaches us. Did God keep his, noise, his nose out of our choices? See, real love is willing to take the chance of short-term pain for long-term joy. Real love is often like a trip to the dentist's office. I mean, I hate going to the dentist's office. Right? But you go knowing I'm, I'm going to experience short-term discomfort. How can that small, thin woman floss teeth that aggressively. (laughs) But why do I do it? In spite of the pain, there's long-term health. And so Paul here, he's criticized for not coming when he says it's love that motivated me to stay away for a time. Do you have difficult conversations? Are you willing to? If you're here, it's likely you're either in a D group or a community group or both. 
Do you say hard things ever? Now, I want you to know there's sort of, I think, two errors. Probably many of us, we, we don't want to say hard things. So we just stay away from them. We sort of turn a blind eye and hope everything turns out. There's another error, which is there's a big difference between being willing to say hard things and enjoying saying hard things. Right? The, the Apostle Paul doesn't have an evil cackle. Like he's not rubbing his hands together and saying, oh, what's on the menu today? Another rebuke. He's like, I don't enjoy this. He's like, this is what I'm longing for. I'm longing that my next visit to you doesn't have any stress or anxiety or edginess. I want my next visit with you to be a vacation. I want to feast with you. I want to laugh with you. He says, it's this longing to enjoy you. That led me to make a painful visit, but it's also what led me to skip a visit. And you realize that Paul could have taken a much different approach to what was happening in this church. Like Paul could have marched into that assembly wearing like his official apostle badge. Like he's got a scroll and he's wielding it like a nightstick. Like he's gonna beat someone's brains in. What, what's that you're saying? Say it in my face. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he's like, I I refuse to use my authority to be domineering. Verse 24, I do not mean that we lord it over your faith. We are workers with you for your joy. I think there's a verse that describes the desire of the elders or redeemer. It's this verse. We are not here to lord over you. We are not going to domineer. We will fail sometimes. And we'll even fail in this. But it's not our desire. Our desire is to work with you that your faith will be firm so that your joy is full. So in the Wall Street Journal, there's an editorial decades ago where the writer wrote this line. It's a great observation. He said, people want to be lightly governed by strong governments. People want to be lightly governed by strong governments. And this is how we want our authority was an authority over us, right? We want dad to be strong. Right, my dad's stronger than your dad. My dad can be up your dad. Why do we say that? We want him to be strong. He can protect us. He can provide for us. We want him to be like that, but we really want him to be gentle to us. Right? A dad with big muscles who holds us in tender hugs. Like this describes Paul's treatment of the church here. He is strong. Right? He's, he's aggressively defending them from attacks on their faith, from false teaching, from a perverted gospel. He's strong in the fact that he suffered repeatedly in order to get the gospel to them. He is strong and he is gentle. Because even as he's, he is being criticized by this church that he has poured out his life for, he responds in love. He's like, I I'm going to pursue your joy. That's what I'm after. This week I saw a review that someone had posted about their experience in a restaurant. It was a pretty harsh review. Like sort of blasted everything. The bad service, high prices, long wait time. And the, the restaurant actually responded to their review and they did it with a single sentence. They wrote, we don't open until next month. Like that. Isn't it great? If you can, you're like, see, the criticism was wrong. Most of the time, that's not how we get to handle criticism. 
Right? So when a, when a teacher stands up in front of your entire class and criticizes you for something that really wasn't your fault, it doesn't, you don't get to solve it with a quick sentence on Yelp. Or when your boss casts the blame on you even though you weren't the one responsible. Or when your spouse refuses to listen to what happened and just is angry and frustrated at you really without an understanding at all what led to it. Or, or maybe when a church is blasted, which will be online for being bigoted or whatever because we, we act in love and obey what God says. In those moments, we're going to be tempted to despair or we're going to be tempted to defensiveness. In fact, we're going to be tempted to respond in the way our culture tells us is appropriate, right? We, we fight for our reputation. We're, we're, we go on the off offensive and we attack. We're going to teach them they don't mess with us. Or we drown our sorrow in distraction. We hide our emotions behind a video screen. We give up. And we're going to find a new identity and a relationship, a new job, a new hobby, a new waste of time. Let me just say to you, brothers and sisters, criticism is an opportunity to be distinct. The way we handle criticism, not like everyone else, but in light of the cross, can be a powerful witness to those around us. When we're criticized, we don't attack. We actually take time to examine our lives and to see if, is there any truth at all to these charges? And if we find even a speck of truth, we're quick to repent and seek forgiveness. And if we determine this criticism is unjust, that our motives and our actions are pure, we don't seek to defend ourselves or our reputation. We say, how does this criticism impact the gospel? And that determines our response. And then no matter what happens, we act in love. And we pursue the joy of others. We don't act in self-interest. We don't pursue revenge. We don't try to destroy another's reputation. We seek their good and we do whatever is necessary, even uncomfortable things for their long-term joy. You see, it's the cross that teaches us how to respond to criticism. And it reminds us that all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our weaknesses were taken by Jesus. His death, his resurrection brings us vindication. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus if he has accepted us and our identity is sealed by him, then no amount of criticism can destroy our future. Our future is secure in Christ. And it's this security in him because of the cross that shapes how we handle criticism. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need help. Everything in us wants to fight back or it wants to flee. We want to rage about how it's unfair. We don't deserve it. And we need your help. We need your help to follow the path of our Savior 
who when he was criticized did not return criticism. Lord, I pray right now. Pray for maybe a couple people sitting here. The one, first of all, who's hiding. They're not living with openness. There is a secret life, secret actions, secret motives. And I pray that they will step into the light today and they will repent of their sin. And maybe there was criticism that came upon them which was just. And you'll use that criticism as, a, as, like a, a, as a shovel to dig out the, the evil roots that have taken hold of their heart. So I pray for them. And then I pray for the person who's being unfairly criticized. And everything in them wants to either hide in despair or wants to fight defensively. But you're calling them right now to trust you. I pray for them. Give them grace and strength. Lord, we want to see your work in them so powerfully as they respond to this criticism that we can look at them and say, our boast is in them. They are a trophy of your good work and your grace to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.